Welcome to the Exposing Mold podcast. My name is Keely Severson, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alicia Swamy and Eric Johnson. And today we have the honor to interview Chemical Free Gal. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, the Mold Medic, and All-American Restoration, the first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely love what you guys are doing. And I've been a huge fan of Eric's for a really long time. (laughs) We love to hear that. Thank you so much. I know that your health journey has involved exposure to mold and that has had a big impact on your health. Could you please describe to us how you first realized that mold was affecting your health? Yeah. So that was a it's, it was, it took me a long time. My health started declining in 2006 when I switched my work. I accepted a job in a very old building that had actually been set to be demolished and they didn't. What they did is I later found out is that they like just switched out a few walls, put in new flooring, but it was a building that had sustained considerable damage through hurricanes and wind and rainstorms, stuff like that. Within the first year of working in that building, I just started having weird issues like my scalp was itching and bleeding all the time. I Under my nails, I'd have blood and skin. I started having like black and blue blotches on my legs, and I still have two of them to this day, really big. I started having tachycardia and bradycardia, very dizzy. And so I was always very athletic. My husband and I were workout buffs all the time. I went to the gym six, seven times a week. I ate well. I didn't make it a point of drinking maybe once every few months I'd have a glass of wine or, you know, a beer or something like that. And so it wasn't, I wasn't into drugs. And so I didn't know what was happening. And I started suspecting something was off in my office. I don't know. I would say after the first two or three years, because I really couldn't smell anything, but I think as my body got more charged and just bombarded by toxins, I would go in and I would Oh, pick up this putrid smell that I didn't smell in the beginning. And so initially I was reading a few books. I came across an article. It was either Lisa that wrote it was about Eric's story. There was also a doctor that his license was stripped. He was out of Atlanta and he was treating patients with severe chemical sensitivities. And he talked about his journey. Like he traveled the country and talked to taxi drivers and people who were very sensitive to their environment. And he mentioned that it could be chemical exposure or mold exposure. So then when I read the beginner's guide to mold avoidance, I was like, whoa. And so, you know, year by year, we just kept putting pieces together and I just knew we had to leave. And I, I didn't know how serious it was or would have left immediately. I stayed in that building eight years. <laughs> and so it decimated me, but it was just a tr- almost like a rabbit trail of, trying to find out because nobody could tell me, is it your environment? You know, I spent a ton of money going to doctors. We saw a couple dozen did blood work. I mean, I would pass out a couple of times, had to go to the ER, my assistant in the earlier years, she'd have to drive me to my doctor to his clinic. 
because I just, I couldn't breathe. I was having tachycardia, bradycardia. My heartbeat was off. I was in the Cleveland clinic multiple times and they're like, you're in your early twenties. You have kids, they're young, they're stressing you out. Go take a vacation. (laughs) And I was just like, no, something's really wrong. I can't, I can't remember things. It's now it's my skin. Now it's my brain. Now it's my nervous system. I was having trouble working out and I had always worked out without having pain excessively for, you know, five days, two weeks. And so all of these things, as they got worse and worse, and then compounded with the smell I was picking up every time I walked in my office, we decided to just do some swaps, you know? And so we initially did the first round of testing, my husband and I, and sent it off to a lab. And then after that, we involved, you know, I let my employer know and, you know, we went from there. You described a lot of the symptoms that you had. It sounded like quite a few cardiac and cognitive symptoms and some bruising. Did you have any other symptoms? Yes. So frequent urination, like every 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes burning. I had constant UTIs. I I was told I had walking pneumonia multiple times, almost died once because I went to sleep. I had a really high fever. I couldn't breathe, but I had no other symptoms. So I didn't know it was pneumonia. I suspected something was wrong with my lungs because I just kind of heard like a gurgling in my chest, but I was so weak and tired. I just lied down for a nap and my husband ended up waking me and taking me to the doctor. And she was like, thank God you made it because your lungs are full of fluid. Like you would have slept because you're sleeping. You could have died. That's how people die with walking pneumonia. And so I had all these rare and like recurrent infections that Now, in retrospect, I know it wasn't bacterial because the antibiotics didn't help at all. Like I was sick for weeks or months and I started adding herbals and doing oregano and olive leaf and all these things really support and my lungs started getting better, but never completely better. I wheezed chronically. I'd go to talk and you hear, you know, like that little wheeze. I'd choke when I was talking. I couldn't walk up the stairs. So I worked on on the second floor. I had to drive my kids to school in the morning and I'd get vertigo and and I'd get dizzy while driving. So I had to pull over and I'd sit there on the steering wheel like, oh my God, like (laughs) we're going to be late for school and like the car is moving. And it was just very traumatic. I didn't know what was happening. And so, so vertigo, dizziness, very low blood pressure. So I started struggling with my blood pressure being like 90 over 50 all the time. 80 over 50, 80, and for no reason, you know? And so I would travel with a little bag of Himalayan pink salt in my purse. And I'd just put it under my tongue to just to help because I just, nobody could tell me what was, what was happening. I had nuclear isotopes injected scanning for infection, like nothing showed up other symptoms. So extreme memory loss every year that went by, it got much worse. I would take supplements and two minutes later, I would say, guys, did you see mommy take their, her vitamins? And they'd say, mommy, you just took them like two minutes ago. I'd be like, no, I didn't. Like I had no recollection. And that's what really started worrying my husband. He's like, something's really wrong because you're super young and that shouldn't be happening. I started having extreme changes in mood and that was scary and severe depression, which I didn't talk about with anyone, even like suicidal thoughts. Like I didn't want to live anymore. And I really struggled because I was a constant go, go, go. I was an encourager. You know, I ran, I had an herbal apothecary that I did on the side. I worked full time. I worked in my community. And here I was like, I want to jump out the car and my husband's driving. (laughs) Like it was, it was very intense. And I, I couldn't really talk to anyone about it because nobody really understood. Even friends and family, they were just like, well, why are you the only one sick? 
you know, just doesn't make sense. Other people in your office should be sick. Well, other people were, they just got heart attacks and, you know, other people had scalp issues and other people developed cancer and like people were sick, but in different ways, you know, and I didn't have enough information at the time in the early years, 2006, seven and eight to truly piece together everything, you know, that was happening. And so I would say that would be the bulk of the symptoms trying to think of, oh, I had a ringing and burning, like ringing in my ears and burning in my, in my, um, my gums. I felt like they were constantly, you know, on fire. I had, um, I was diagnosed with left chronic blepharitis. So I had chronic styes in my eye, my blood vessels would burst. So in the corners, they were always bloodshot red styes. Initially I thought it was my makeup. And so I switched everything. And then I started making my own makeup and cosmetics. And so aside from that, ear infections, the hormonal changes, those were really big. I think just the mood hormones, like libido, all that just done, you know? Right. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting that you say this was a progression over years of you putting this together because I feel like with this not being really clearly discussed, especially in mainstream medicine, a lot of us are sick from this for a really long time and have things like recurrent infections and memory problems, and we don't know what it is, what's causing it. I'm really curious for the mold swabs that your husband and you did in the office, what what molds came up and how did your office respond to that? So we, so there was aspergillus. I forget which one. Mm, it's been a while. There was cladosporum. There was cladosporum aspergillus and like three other types, but it wasn't, it was just one of these cheap swabs. Like we got online. It didn't really tell you like species genus, like, or mycotoxins. Not like you, you'll find out when you do the ERMI or anything like that, but it was of enough concern that they said, well, you shouldn't have these specific types indoors and in, in, in the way that they show in this test for the small area that was sampled. So we did not disclose the test samples to my employer at the time. We just said like, there is a mold issue. I, I mean, the humidity in my office would reach 72%. <laughs> so I got a humidistat and I got a dehumidifier and I'd empty gallons of water a day. And so yeah, it was really bad. And it got so bad. I had, I bought a P100 because I just felt like I couldn't breathe. So I'd wear a P100 most of the day so I could work because I just, the air was just so bad. I bought a HEPA filter, just like all these stupid things you think you, that makes sense to do to stay in a place that's killing you, you know, because marketing tells you there's gurus that tell you these mold, you know, proclaimed self-proclaimed mold experts, doctors making tens of thousands of dollars and they're selling this and selling that. And so in the earlier years, I was like, okay, an air purifier, dehumidifier, humidistat. You know, I thought it was on top of my game (laughs) and it's just like, I was slowly killing myself by staying there. But we did, I did talk with a building management. Of course they negated. They were like, no, no, no. And so, but my boss was very concerned. And so he asked them to do testing. My employer rented space from a building. So they were very, you know, confined, like it was, they really couldn't take matters into their own hands. They kind of had to trust the building to do the adequate testing. They said they were going to do remediation 
and they sent me to a different office to work and they, their idea of remediating my office was putting in a big machine (laughs) and sucking the air and like recycling the air with big HEPA filters for 24 hours so that the tester could come in right before they remove the machine and test the air. Oh man. And and my employer did not do that. That was the building. And I was like, you mother flowers. (laughs) Like I could not believe it. But, and then they, the areas that they decided to check in other offices because there were other problems and they did cut out wall. Like they were dragging moldy materials through the hallways. Like the staff sent me pictures of like, look what they're doing. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is not going to turn out good. And then I did my first mold sabbatical and we went overseas twice. And I was very, very sick. We went to two very different climates in South America. Um, one very humid and dry in certain areas, one very cold and, you know, but very high elevation. And so I did interestingly very well at high elevation. So I actually hiked the second highest active volcano in the world being extremely sick. Wherein where I lived in Florida, I had trouble getting out of my car and walking up a flight of stairs. And here I was hiking overseas you know, at my sickest action, I'm going to show you pictures. My face is super swollen. That's one of the symptoms I forgot. Super swollen, like fat face, you know, double chin, you know, from mold. And so, yeah, I kind of went ahead of myself there, but no, thank you. I, I appreciate you pointing that out because a lot of people do gain water weight from mold exposure. And if you're anything like I was, I just, thought that I had gained weight, having no idea what was in my environment. Yeah. I thought it was just after the baby. Like I just never lost the weight. And I was like, wait a second, I've had kids before and I lost the weight like this. Like what's happening. I never lost it. And like, you know, chest gets bigger, like under neck gets bigger and my legs bigger. And I was just like, what's happening. I didn't understand this whole stagnation with your lymph, not moving and mold damaging that and damaging detox pathways. And I had no idea that that was happening. Do you have any residual symptoms today that are just after effects of that exposure? Yes. So I actually developed tumors in my liver. I had fungal balls in my lungs in the earlier years. Those have disappeared, thank God. But two of the tumors on my thyroid were just normal. They were benign. And then about three years ago, one tested cancer. And I developed those in that building. I didn't have those prior. And so I was told I needed to have emergency surgery. I opted not to because it was, for me, it was a huge risk. Three years ago, we were just starting the whole renting and mold and all this nonsense. And prior to three years of hidden homelessness, I was the only one sick and our youngest who I was pregnant with in the building who was also severely affected, but nobody else, everyone else was fine. So we were in limbo without a house and all the stuff going on. I'm like, number one, I can't have surgery Two, the risk of anesthesia. Like my immune system is shot right now. I don't want to go under the knife. And then what if I die? <laughs> you know. So I've opted to do things naturally. And, but yeah, that was one of the things that one of the tumors became cancerous through biopsy culture study. So my fibromyalgia symptoms, which we all know is really not, it's just the mold toxicity in itself. I was diagnosed with a mild ME-CFS too in the earlier years. I still can't fully exercise to the 
limit that I was used to. So I would do intense cardio an hour weightlifting. Like, you know, my husband, my husband was a professional bodybuilder and I've never been able to return to that like level of fitness, but I'm able to exercise. Um, mold avoidance was huge, a huge part of that mold and chemical avoidance. But these last couple of years, I got knocked on my behind because of moldy rentals. So I kind of slipped backward a bit. And I have been having some vertigo and stuff if I'm in moldy spaces or, you know, around people that are contaminated, walking down the street and you could just smell somebody smells like a moldy closet, you know, their clothes, things like that. Things that I had pretty much gotten past, but being exposed to moldy dwellings just kind of pushed me, you know, a few steps back. I'd say the main one is pain, pain and inflammation. I think when you have injuries in your body, like I was hit by a drunk driver and I was pregnant with my first almost died. And I, that caused issues in my, my disc, my lower disc and caused damage to my sciatic nerve. I think so that, although that healed over time, it's still a weak spot. And so when you're exposed to toxins or poisons, I think it just targets the weaker parts of the body. And so for me, like my nervous system gets hit really hard if I'm exposed to things. Now I'm doing much better, but there's still, you know, times where I'm like, oh, I'm in so much pain and come to find out, you know, I was walked into a moldy grocery store or ate something that was moldy and then like spit it out. But, you know, it still affects you. And my memory, I don't think my cognition has gotten, I'm nowhere near like, I'd say maybe I've recovered maybe 70%, but not like I used to be. I tell Eric and Alicia the same thing all the time. My brain is not what it was before that exposure that knocked me out. So I hear you on that one. I'm wondering if you personally found support from the medical community, because I know a lot of us who ask our doctors if all these crazy symptoms can be from mold and they usually say, no, mold just causes allergy. What was your experience with seeking medical care? So in the hospital, they kept pushing that it was stress, that because I was a young mom, I was stressed. They couldn't understand. So I had monitors placed on me for a month at a time because of how erratic my heart was behaving. They wanted me to do the tilt table testing and all this, these crazy tests to find out why my heart was acting the way it was acting. I had a couple of cardiologists tell me, just see a psychiatrist. And my husband was busy, was on his phone, one of these appointments. And I'm like, really pissed off, like crying. I'm upset. And I just walk out and my husband looks up. He's like, what happened? I'm like, did you not hear what he said to me? He's like, he said what? And he goes back. He's like, thank God that guy left. Cause I was going to beat the crap out of him. <laughs> like he, he didn't realize what he, he was so mad. And it was a young guy too, you know, young cardiologist. And, but one of my doctors, a functional, uh, not functional, sorry, a family medicine doctor, he was a young doctor and he was very malleable. So him and I would have really good conversations. And he's like, well, you know, when I was in school in the university of Miami, there were a lot of women who had fibromyalgia and I prescribed Diflucan because they were having recurrent yeast infections. Well, then after a few months, they'd come back and say, can you give me more Diflucan? And and I'd say, why? Well, because it helped their fibromyalgia symptoms. And he's like, so there is a connection. I don't know what it is, you know? So he was kind of open. And so I remember printing off like hundreds of pages (laughs) and taking it to him for him to study. 
but he really didn't have the resources. When I asked him to run a, a lot of tests, he would run those tests, but he didn't know how to interpret them. And I tried to guide him through it, but he's like, listen, I'm not a specialist. Like, I don't know this. We, we get very little training in this area. I do believe that there's a problem. And he was actually instrumental in writing a letter for me because of all the testing he did. So we kind of, what we did was that I would go to my office prior to going, I would get my vitals taken. So they just basically look at my blood pressure, my sugar levels, um, my heart rate, my oxygen. I'd go to my office and then I'd leave two, three hours later on my lunch and go back to his office and do the same. And he, he noticed changes. He's like, your oxygen is lower. Your blood pressure is lower. Something's definitely wrong. So we kind of, so that kind of convinced him. Cause I was like, can you check me like just basic things before I go in and after I come out and we can compare it. And he's like, okay, fine. So he was open to me kind of pushing him to do certain things, but he really didn't have the expertise or knowledge. So that's when I started searching like out of state and trying to see, you know, where I could go. I had a few friends, including Doug Kaufman from Know the Cause. He was like, like, you really need to see this doctor in Texas. He's a pulmonologist. He knows how to treat, you know, for uh, lung-induced condition, uh, mold-induced lung conditions. And so at that time I had the aspergillosis. And so, but I really, yeah, I didn't really get much understanding from about 95% of the doctors. And even the family doctor in the beginning, he, he, he didn't know it was environmentally, like there was a link. Thank you for sharing that. We do hear that a lot, that doctors, the environmental causes aren't the, aren't the ones that they're the most well-versed in. Eric and Alicia, do you have any questions? Yeah, the uh, aspergillus. I remember back in the 90s, the Porath family, the ones in People magazine that burned down their house, the fire cure. Mm. Well, they... Uh, suffered from a lot of fungal infections and all the, you know, the whole gamut of of illness. And yet their doctor recognized that aspergillus wasn't normally supposed to do this to people. It's a common mold. And he had been through it himself. So he recognized that it was the presence of stachybotrys as an immune suppressor, which enabled the aspergillus to get out of control. Now, a lot of times I, I see people blaming aspergillus as causative when it is so common and people are exposed to aspergillus routinely, like um, carpenters are cutting up moldy lumber all day, yeah. breathing aspergillus, and yet they are not the ones that are dropping from these aspergillus infections, rather it's the teachers, it's the nurses in sick buildings where they're finding stachybotrys, toxic mold, and chemicals. Yeah, I believe it. I think the only reason why we didn't find stachybotrys on the tests that we did was because of where we sampled. So we sampled high up of the, the air vents. We sampled the corners of the where the, the crown molding meets. And so we sampled high up. And, you know, as you know, the stachybotrys is heavy, so it's going to go down to the floor. That's why it's dangerous. We have stachy and babies crawling on the floor. They're getting all of it. These are, these are heavy, sticky spores. And so we never tested, like I never sent out, you know, in the initial test that we did samples of the carpet or, you know, I didn't do an ermy on the floor or in, 
at the bottom of behind my cabinet. You know, I think we might have, or had I done wall cavity testing at that point, I didn't know about it at the time, but had I done wall cavity testing, I'm pretty sure we would have found stachybotrys. I'm almost, because now I understand what it feels like to be knocked on your butt with stachy. We rented a house that had almost 20,000 spores per cubic meter of stachybotrys. So your decent mold testers and remediators will tell you, well, you don't want more than a hundred spores per cubic meter. I don't want any spore per cubic meter, but 100 versus 20,000. And we felt like we were dying in the house just day one. Very different than being around other molds like Eric, like what you're saying. It is night and day difference. We couldn't function. I mean, we all had, and those are totally different symptoms. That was my entire family at this point. Okay, that makes sense. So when people started investigating sick building syndrome, they noticed that most of the common molds, the lesser molds, when people were removed from exposure, they tended to recover. In fact, this was automatic. So guaranteed that it was assumed that mold was very similar to an allergy. And if you remove people, that's it. Or even if you don't get people out of the uh, sick building, but just remove the colony, just get the air filters, increase the airflow, that people are going to get better. And in the uh, 1980s, a couple instances started showing up where people did not get better. They uh, were taken out of the buildings completely, and they continued to get worse. And in those instances, it turns out that the mold was a trichothecene producer. So that was my goal, was to try to get attention to the immune-suppressing effects of the trichothecene molds and the possibility that the exposure to the especially toxic molds was setting people up for chemical sensitivities, mm-hmm. whereas the lesser molds probably are, are not so likely to do that. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I think once you're exposed to toxic mold, in this case, stachybotrys, it opens up the world for of your body just to be damaged. I think every single organ and damaged differently. And then you have your opportunists. So I think the other molds are kind of like opportunists and they take their opportunity to damage as well. But like what Eric is saying, I do believe that stachybotrys is just a totally different animal. And I was reading that has like a sister, I forget the name, Eric, you'll know that there's yeah. another mold. Yeah. And that one's a real nasty bastard. <laughs> Sorry for my language, but I just, I despise mold and it makes me anger when people deny that it's a problem. But I do believe it just opens up the door, it damages, and then all these other opportunists, be it other types of mycotoxin producing molds or simple things like candida, which needs to be in your body in in normal amounts. But I think they just take the opportunity to kind of just freak out and cause damage in different organ systems. And and I think that's what the medical community doesn't understand. And because they see such severe symptoms, especially in children, a child that's normal, all of a sudden they have autoimmune encephalitis and they can't remember their math. You know, we went through that. That's hell. And your well, mold can't do that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. At the uh, 2019 Fort Lauderdale, Florida Mold Congress, Dr. Chin Yang, who is one of the co-editors of the Bible of Mold Illness, the uh, Saratoga Springs Proceedings Manual, he uh, presented information on the evil twin 
Yes. Stachybotrys chlorohalinata. And he uh, described how this was a more devious mold than Stachybotrys charterum for the most amazing reason. And that is that the atronones are pure immune suppressors that shut off cell division, bring your immune system to a complete stop. So you've got no immune function, no ability to regenerate, no ability for the cells to repair themselves and grow new ones without the neurotoxic warning signs of Stachybotrys charterum. So there's no warning. It's like um, mold-induced chemical AIDS. And Dr. Yang speculated that a lot of the times when they detected Stachybotrys, but people weren't exhibiting neurological effects, so they thought, well, it's probably not a particularly bad mold, and yet these people fell apart anyway. It may very well have been the hidden effects, the immunosuppressive effects of the evil twin chlorhalinata. That makes sense. Yeah. It's so now it huge. makes me want to you know, go back and find out all these incidents where stachybotrys was found, but it was a small amount. And the people that got some kind of chronic illness, they, they uh, it developed in an insidious manner, quietly, slowly, mm-hmm. with cancer and opportunistic affections, but without the overt neurological problems. Yeah. I, I believe that, um, I mean, this was so amazing, so astounding that stachybotrys could have a subliminal hidden evil twin that cannot be detected by visual examination. You can only tell the difference by PCR because it is morphologically identical to Charterum, but they only found this out by determining that there was a a variant that um, had a completely different set of of, uh, toxin production. And uh, Charterum. So the, uh, when the Mold Congress broke up, I thought, wow, this, this is even more reason to look into Stachybotrys and find out if people are immune damaged from this in ways that doctors didn't understand because there was no warning. And yet, to my amazement, nobody said a word. Yeah, I think it's not in the convenience of those who are in certain positions to bring attention to this. I've written about this more so on my older blog, and I have some on chemicalfreegal.com as well. You know, it would destabilize society if the powers that be accepted that these things were a problem. So in my estimate, I'd say 70% or more of buildings, schools would have to be knocked down. You know, we're talking businesses, churches, libraries, hospitals, nursing homes. I think 70% or more would have to be knocked down. I think the whole paradigm would shift. (laughs) It would be chaos. And so knowing that our military and overseas, they have done testing. They know how toxic these things are, but they keep it hush-hush. I think it's almost kind of in a way to keep society stable. But at the same time, you have thousands of families who are suffering. You have the, our own military is placed in moldy housing infested with rats, you know, or radon gas is an issue. It's a hidden issue or there's lead or the pipes haven't been used and they're getting 
you know, sickness from, from bacteria and growth in the water. So you have all these things going on and you have to fight them on it because they don't accept as a problem. So I think it's just something that comes, starts at the top and just trickles down and it trickles down into the medical community in the way that they're taught, you know, prior to, you know, the early 1900s, there wasn't anything such as allopathic medicine. Everything was herbal medicine. You know, you had doctors climbing on their little ladders, taking down their tinctures and (laughs) extracts. And, you know, that was, but that's another topic for another podcast on how that system is controlled. But I just think that we can make a lot of noise and sharing is important, but I'm kind of at the, I've lost hope that there'll ever be change because it has to come from the top. And so if, if you're making money researching an illness because it exists, well, guess who stops making money and getting grants and funding if we find what's really causing it and we actually find a cure, right? Well, you're out of a job and so are all your lead scientists. And so, and it's not just here, you know, it's all over the world. It's corruption is imminent. It's everywhere. And I think these podcasts like this are super important because if anything, it validates the suffering person. It makes them feel like they're not crazy. It can mean someone not taking their life. And so for me, that's golden. Even if I don't see change at the top levels, I'm happy with sharing because I can make a difference in the life of a mom who's contemplating suicide like I was, or someone who just feels like they're completely in despair because their spouse doesn't believe them. They're about to lose their job. They're, they're medically gas, you know, gaslit or gaslighted. I'm not sure how you say that. And so it's important for us to share because we make a difference. And we can hope maybe one day the system will change, but it's highly unlikely in my opinion. Well, when we share our stories, it uh, increases awareness so that yes. when people does do like suffer effects from going into a certain building and the doctors tell them it's all in your head and there's no basis for it, a lot more of their friends are going, now, wait a minute, I've heard about this. Yeah, it's true. And that's why it's, it's so important what you guys do. I'm tired. You know, most of the time I don't get paid for doing most of the consultations I've done these last few years have been reduced. And I mean, I charge 25% or don't charge at all because my heart bleeds for people that they really, they have nowhere to live. People living in their car and, you know, just answering a simple question. Hey, what did you feel? What were your symptoms? You know, my husband and I have done zooms with couples where they're at the point of divorce because the spouse doesn't believe the other spouse. And he sat on a zoom and say, man up this, this is hell. And yes, this is what happened to my wife. And then I was sick for a totally different reason. And she had to care for me. And so till death do us part, this is real. This is not something you get to be abusive to your spouse about. Like we've done those many of those over the years, it's heartbreaking. People don't get validated. And then it's even worse when you're living in a place where your spouse or your roommate or your friend is abusing you, is bullying you or making you feel like you're a hypochondriac or, (laughs) or you're mentally ill because you react to things and you can seem like a mentally ill person, (laughs) you know, just, I think if we were to videotape some of our previous reactions, like, Oh, like, you know, when Keely was talking, I think months ago about this, her, her cabinet in the kitchen and turning on the stove, like I would just, 
envisioning her and I'm like, I would be like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like, I don't feel good. Like, what's going on? Like, turn off the light, open the window. And like, if you had a person videoing you, they'd be like, she's off her mind. (laughs) Like she's literally lost her mind. But it's the reality that we go through. And I think a lot of these symptoms do mimic mental illness. And so, and then you, we do have people who have a mental illness who are also injured by mold. And so it makes it so very difficult. And I think that's why the medical community just slaps a label, like go see a psychiatrist, go see a psychologist, take a, you know, antidepressant like they did with me, because it's so much easier than to really dig in and really do your job. And and like I say, think outside of the box, don't get stuck in the box thinking mentality. Yeah. Years ago, I suggested that uh, researchers set up video cameras at the entrances right in the front door of really bad buildings. Because when people walk in, you can see the change in their faces. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I know from just standing in front of a building, whether it's bad and I, I won't go in now. So that's actually that's a really good idea, Eric. I like that idea. Everything that you're saying is just so on point because, you know, it, it, it brings me back to like women's voting rights and what women had to do to have the power to vote. I mean, they would stand in front of trains and lock themselves to a government building, you know, in handcuffs. And it's like, is that what we really need to do to get things done here? Because we can't just keep perpetuating this mental illness thing. Like I literally, like before this meeting, I saw a post by Dr. Mark Hyman, who is very esteemed in the field of medicine and functional medicine And he put a post up that said 90% of doctors think that diseases are stress-related. I want to go to this guy's house and punch him in the face, honestly, because I'm just like, you are perpetuating, first and foremost, laziness by doctors to actually investigate or look into any diseases, Mm -hmm. but you're also doing a major injustice to people who are suffering from causes that can be known and can be found out and can be remedied. Yeah. And so- Keely, Eric, and I have gotten together, and it's not even about us. It's not even about ego. It's not about however much money we want to make or whatever. It's about helping as many people as we can because we know what we went through with this disease. And same as you, the suicidal thoughts, the almost divorcing, we've all been through it. It's just like so many lost relationships and friendships and just your entire life is freaking wrecked. Yeah. And I don't want to see anyone else have to go through this if all they need is some information that they can use and apply to their life to avoid the situation. And that's basically why we're here at Exposing Mold. And that's why I'm alive today. I feel like Eric has saved me so much just through information and tools and techniques through how many more years of suffering. Like I blindly trusted Eric and just threw everything in my car and went out to Death Valley and I said, I'm doing what you're telling me. And like, I'm back on the power curve today. I mean, I'm not a hundred percent and I'm way farther than I was before when I was knocking on death's door. And so it's like, it's just these certain set of tools and things that people can learn that we can teach Mm -hmm. to help people get through this that you're teaching as well. I mean, I'm like, I see her post and I'm just like, this girl is on it. She freaking knows. Like we need to bring her and be a part of exposing mold in some fashion because she gets it. 
and not a lot of people do. And so that's a line that we have to cross too, where people look at us and they think that we're crazy, but we understand that there's a subset of the population that are extremely hypersensitive and that will go, you know, even though they're feeling fine in a mold-free environment, they go into a a mold-free environment that has stacky or whatever, and they're having symptoms and they don't understand why. And so we just want to help guide people through that situation and, and really help those that are hypersensitive because, We all understand this. As you said earlier, 70% of buildings, which this was confirmed by my realtor, 75% of homes that she sells, she sees mold in them. That's probably even higher across the United States. We saw 98%. We saw over 120 homes. I lost track after 120. 98% were moldy. Wow. Confirmed through testing, just us feeling very ill upon opening the door, 98%. And these were new homes, old homes. There's no distinction. That's probably a way more accurate estimation than what we're seeing on paper, which is like what 50 is what they're reporting. And it's just like, this is going to be a growing problem. This is not going to slow down. This is like, we're at a tipping point where everyone is going to be freaking sick from this and dying or getting disabled and being debilitated or killing each other or divorcing. It's just like, Oh, you know, like the world is on our shoulders, I feel sometimes, but you know what, we have to do this work and we have to help people because it can be mitigated. It, it Like just recognize the issue. Let's build solutions yeah. and we don't have to go through the suffering. I mean, yeah. that's really what it is at the end of the day. So hopefully these institutions that have been trying to bury mold for this long, they, I, I hope they turn a new leaf, like you said, and they start working with people who like us are trying to educate and help. But until then, we just have to pull up our boots and uh, go through the belly of the beast. (laughs) Yeah. And I really wish contractors, architects would get on board with understanding safe building practices. I really worry that as the push for more energy efficient buildings continues, things are going to get much worse because we're building these ultra tight buildings that there's no airflow there's no ventilation. They're building the, the, the duct work incorrectly. And so from day one, you're having moisture because they're setting it on top of things that they should. I mean, there's so many different mistakes that we've seen. And then upon day one of somebody going into a new building, they start getting sick. And so I, I, I really wish the, the contracting community and architects would take a look at that the health of the building, what's known as building biology, although there's some things that they say that I don't necessarily always agree with. But it's important, I think, to look at the overall health, just like when you look at a person, it's not just a symptom, like you look at the whole body and you analyze and you say, well, what could be going wrong? Are Is there anything that could be working synergistically to affect this person? It's the same thing with buildings. I think we need to look at them as a whole and say, is there anything working synergistically to make this building toxic t- towards humans? And I worry that as we build more tight, energy efficient homes, we're going to see more people sick, unfortunately. And what really makes me sad is children. You know, you have children taking antipsychotics at four and five because they're having hallucinations. Mold can cause hallucinations. You know, you have mold. I did a post about this on my Instagram and Facebook a couple months back about mold spores in old books making people trip. 
like if they're on mushrooms, like literally there's studies about this and it's like open up a moldy book. And I even joked about it. I was like, well, maybe those writers of old, this is how they got their inspiration because they were looking at older books and like, woo, like writing, you know, <laughs> I was like, I had to be in the mold spores, but people don't believe that. So I just think that just spreading awareness is so important. Now I have to ask you, have you ever had any mold induced like hallucinations or seen things? I haven't seen things, but I had like the effect of like being somewhere else, like not where I'm at. I don't know if I can explain it. Just feeling like I'm not in my living room right now. Like I'm somewhere else. It's an imminent feeling like of of doom. Like, I don't know, just your brain shutting down. And this was in the Saki Batra's house. Like I couldn't pace myself. You know, our kids were struggling going up and down stairs, like losing balance, dropping things, breaking things like very severe, but I have never really had like hallucinations per se. I had really bad dreams, horrible like scary dreams and the moldy, moldy homes that we rented. And when I worked in the moldy building, very intense, I did have a lot of like panic and fear and anxiety, but I never, yeah, never any hallucinations or anything like that. Did you ever walk into a stacky Batra's house that you lived in and feel like there was maybe someone hiding, like sensed a presence not that I can recall, except for something just nasty. Like, you know, I didn't know what it was at the time, the house that we rented, we, I didn't get to inspect it fully. We were, had been living in and out of hotels and tenting for a long time. We were tired. My husband went to see this house with the realtor. It was new. They thought it was good. I went in and they were diffusing an essential oil and I won't name it that uses synthetic cinnamon. They say it's natural, but it's not, it's been altered. And it was so potent because they had multiple diffusers all throughout this house. It was a huge two-story house. And so I initially walk in, I'm like, Oh, when I walked in for the first time and I did not feel well, and I was too tired and too, too stressed. And I know better. And I chalked it up to the essential oils because my husband didn't feel well either. And he's like, I'm not chemically sensitive. What's going on. And I was just like, well, they, the lady was diffusing like in every single room, it had to be that. And I was just not sleeping. And I think that's where mold gets you. You, you don't think rationally. I think it just erases your ability to reason and think rationally. And so we ended up going into that house. And after the first night of sleeping there, it was like, I just felt this heaviness. I did like just this I don't know, an utter despair. Like I felt like we were going to die, that we had to get out of there. And that's when I called a guy who has a PhD. He's one of the best in in the state to come out and do wall cavity sampling and all that. So yeah, it's really interesting. Sense of like, I'm going to die if I don't get out of here. Like told you, Alicia, something like that. You too, didn't it? I was just going to mention that. I mean, I got to a point where my body said, you need to get out or else you're going to be done. We did the remediation. This is before we knew anything about mold, right? We had a fogger come and we had the HVAC cleaned and they said, oh yeah, your mold spore count is fantastic after the fogging and (sighs) blah, blah, blah. My husband's like, okay, it's safe for you now. And so we go back and I lasted two days and that was it. I told my husband, look, you need to get me out of here or else I'm just leaving because I cannot live here anymore. And that was the last day I ever went back in that house. Yeah. I think there is that sheer panic. And 
I think it does affect, especially with couples. Like, did you guys argue a lot when you were living in mold? Did you fight a lot with your spouse? Like crazy (laughs) yelling, carrying on Eric, any insight as to why that is? I mean, I know it affects your brain. Like these, these toxins, trichothecenes can go past, past the blood brain barrier and affect every single part of the brain. But it's just like the, the rage and just heightened, I guess, in women, we just, it just screws with our hormones so much. Well, I wrote that up in the British Medical Journal back in 2005, how mold was actually an useful depression response. It's nature's way of telling you to get out. That all the bad dreams, the irritability, the distress, feelings of imminent doom, despair, dread, and like, I'm going to die if I don't get out of here. Mm-hmm. It's like if you were an animal, you'd go, I need to be out of here. Right. But a human rationalizes themselves out of it and goes and buy a air purifier <laughs> or it says, well, I can deal with this with chemicals or air purifier. Whereas really, it's, it's uh, very simple if you just think of this is nature's way of saying, do something about this. I really felt that with the bad dreams, that the bad dreams were trying to scare me out of wherever I was at. And sure enough, if I went out, pitched a tent in the desert, I slept great and the bad dreams went away. Yeah, I had one time I went on a work trip for a weekend. And when I came back to my moldy apartment, the first one, I just walked in and I had this feeling that someone was hiding, like someone with bad intentions was hiding somewhere in my apartment. And I wasn't exhibiting any signs of paranoia or anything like that. And I literally, I went and I looked in every closet. I went and looked behind the doors. I could not shake this feeling that something was there hiding that was dangerous. That's interesting that you say that. So now in retrospect, thinking... Our kids were a lot smaller when I was working in the moldy building and we'd go, we used to go to this big community center and church and activities. And so we dropped the kids like on the second floor and it was like a massive building. And I remember sitting in the chair with like other adults and they're like, hello, like asking me a question. I'm totally zoned into like, okay, if a a terrorist or somebody walks into this building, how, which route should, would I take to get my children? Like how quickly would I get there? Would I have to duck? Which rose would I cut through? Like, it, this was me working through, like, if there was some sort of imminent threat. And I would do this. I did this repeatedly when I was in big spaces and I was scared, you know, that something would happen or some danger, you know, what, what would I do? How quickly would I react? And it, it, I was so petrified. I remember at the time and telling my husband and I was like, we need to devise like a whistle or something. <laughs> And so we're like, if mom starts saying butterfly, like, you know, like meet me at the back of the store, at the front of the store. And we devised like a little whistle because, and, and, and that's funny that you say that those were during those years, you know, it was just things that you think of. Yeah. Just you saying that you were looking at which exit to take reminds me of, I mean, you had asked, did we suffer relationship problems? My husband changed so much. I began to think this man tricks me into marrying him by hiding who he really is. Like there's some <laughs> serious personality changes that I did not see here before. And I remember one day he came home from work and just the look in his eyes was so maniacal. I, I looked at where each one of my three kids was in our apartment and then which door was closest, the, the patio door, the door behind me to go out to the hallway of the apartment building because I was thinking he's going to lose it. And I got to get these kids out of here, like scared. I think that 
that would be one thing that I would really hope that any married couple could get out of this episode is when your spouse begins to change or becomes hyperreactive to stress or really ragey, that's definitely a sign something's not good with the environment. Or fear, like irrational fears from nowhere. So I was never fearful of heights ever. I traveled. My dad had studied in multiple countries. We lived in different countries growing up. We had hiked together volcanoes when I was a kid. And here I was overseas, my first mold sabbatical. And this, I don't even know, this fear gripped me. So we were above the cloud cover. And then all of a sudden the clouds cleared and I saw sheer drops. I'm talking, we're 15,000 feet above sea level. And I'm seeing sheer drops and my knees buckled. I couldn't move. And I'm sitting there like, help, you know, my kids are ahead. The guide's ahead. My husband's like ahead. And I'm sitting there like frozen. So my two youngest come down. They're like, mommy, what's wrong? They literally had to put their arms around me. I was shaking. And I was like, we're too high up. Like we're, and I was just sitting there like, what is wrong with me? I'm not afraid of heights. And that's something I developed. I developed a fear of heights and of small spaces after mold exposure. I never, ever had that. And then getting back on the plane, flying back, you know, they put me in the seat. That's the very first one. So you have like the wall and then like the window. And I just, I was just like, I need the aisle. Like I need to be able to look out. I feel like I can't breathe. Now I know that was because I was in mold at the time, but it just didn't make sense to me. I was like, I've never had these fears. I never felt like I was going to die or choke to death because I was in a small space or, you know, hiking and looking down and feeling like I'm going to die. Like I can't look over even up till now. Like I can't go on roller coasters or things like that. I get super dizzy, end up getting having vertigo, but the fear of heights has now that we went to Colorado, I pushed myself. So we went to this place called black Canyon of the Gunnison, I think, which is absolutely spectacular and you're really high up. And so there's a trail that's about two feet wide and then it's sheer drops. And so my husband's looking at me, I'm like, I was like hiker exercise girl. I'm going to do this, you know, take pictures of me. And so I'm walking out and I'm trying not to look down. And I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to let this govern my life. No. And, and then all of a sudden I looked down and then I had vertigo. It was just like, it was crazy. And my husband's looking at me and I have this thing that happens. He knows I'm not feeling well. My eyes get like dark, like purple sunken in and I get super pale. He's like, you're not feeling well. Are you? He's like, scoot scoot down because if, if I could try to go over to you, I can't walk around you. I'll fall off. And so here I am like scooting all the way down, like touching the floor, like crawling over to him, <laughs> but I made it, I made it halfway through the trail. So, but yeah, I, stuff like that never used to happen to me. Now, before I would have never even been able to go on that trail, just the sheer fear of looking at it saying no, but I made it halfway out. It was totally fine. And then it just tripped me up looking down and everything just started spinning. And I don't know, it could have been bad outside air. I don't know. There was a lot of people that were ahead of us. So maybe they had some nasty stuff on them. I don't know what it was, but yeah, it was just definitely very fearful. Um, It's pretty funny. I wish you would have videoed me like scooting down on the floor trying to turn around. Thank you for sharing that. I think that talking about the bad dreams and the irrational fears, I think that might be part of some person's missing puzzle piece. So thank you so much for joining us and for being so transparent and sharing your experience. I'm wondering if, is there a website or an email 
that you can share or contact yeah. for anyone who may want to read more information from you or connect with you? Sure. So my blog website is chemicalfreegal.com. And then on there, you can find links to my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My Instagram handle is chemicalfreegal. My Facebook handle is chemicalfreeg, I believe, because gal was taken. And Twitter, it's chemicalfreegal. So if you want to reach me, you can. I'm pretty active um, Instagram stories. So I post a lot in my stories more so than I do on my feed, but I try and post at least a few times a week on my Instagram feed as well. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Chemical Free Gal, AKA. She is so wonderful. She's an excellent help on all things mold. She's gone through it herself. So she completely understands. This conversation was just so wonderful to have because we're always interviewing experts and they're always spewing out these terms and all this stuff. And it just feels so great to just talk with someone who's actually been through it as well and just sharing our experiences and just letting you all know that we've had these experiences too, as much as you guys and everything that you're going through as well. And so we just want to be here to be as supportive as we can and to keep providing you with information and help moving forward in your journey. Please like, share, comment on our content. Also check out our GoFundMe and Patreon pages to keep this podcast rolling and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 